0: Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting edge information. In this episode, Associate Editor Dr. Mario Cazzola discusses the review series on classical myeloproliferative neoplasms with authors Dr. Ann Molali and Dr. Allison Moliterno.
1: I am Mario Cazzola, a former professor of hematology at the University of Pavia Medical School, Pavia, Italy. I am currently continuing my studies on myeloid neoplasms at Fondazione X Policlinico San Matteo, a research hospital in Pavia, Italy. As a blood editor, I conceived and coordinated uh, this review series on classical myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPNs, that is polycythemia vera, essential thrombocytemia, and myelofibrosis. Until the end of the 90s, these were neglected disorders whose pathogenesis was unknown. Therapeutic tools included phlegmotomy for patients with polycythemia vera and red blood cell transfusion for those with primary myelofibrosis. The turning point was in 2004 when at Gustave Roussy in Paris, William k identified the gain-of-function V617F mutation in the gene JEC2. In uh, 2005, four papers in Nature, New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, and Cancer Cell reported the prevalence and patterns of this mutation in patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms. This discovery opened avenues of research and led to the identification of other mutant genes in MPNs like MPL and Calar. At the same time, clinical trials were conducted on the use of JAK2 inhibitors in these patients. In brief, what were neglected disorders soon became the front line of research. The review series includes uh, the following articles. Damien Lukpaf, Robert Kralovic, and Rades Skoda discuss uh, genetic basis and molecular profiling in myeloproliferative neoplasms. John Howe, Jacqueline Garcia, and Amulali examine biology and therapeutic targeting of molecular mechanisms in myeloproliferative neoplasms. Alison Moliterno, Hannah Kaiser, and Brandy Reeves discuss uh, JEC2V617F allele burden in polycythemia vera, burden of proof. Anna Groffrey, Anna Green, and Claire Harrison analyze essential thrombocytemia challenges in clinical practice and uh, future prospects. And finally, Francesco Passamonti and Barbara Moa discuss myelofibrosis. This uh, review series includes uh, translational science such as uh, the genetic basis uh, and molecular profiling in MPNs, or biology and therapeutic targeting of molecular mechanisms, and more clinical review articles as those on polycythemia vera, essential thrombocytemia, and myelofibrosis.
0: My name is Anne Mullally. I'm an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. I'm an MPN physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. This article provides the most current information on therapeutic targeting in myeloproliferative neoplasms with a focus on MPN disease biology. I think it will be of interest to clinical hematologists taking care of patients with MPN and myeloid malignancies, to trainees in hematology, to scientists and drug developers both in academia, but also in pharma and biotech. The major advances in the treatment of MPN have come from understanding MPN disease biology. And the classic example of that is the discovery of the so-called MPN phenotypic driver mutations, JAK2, Calor, and MPL. And as physicians, I think it's helpful to think about the problems our patients present with through a biological lens. I think this helps us to be better doctors and helps us to develop relevant research questions to advance the care and treatment of our patients with MPN. So I think my top three takeaways are, first of all, I think as a field, we need to expand our risk stratification of MPN beyond just thrombotic risk. So we currently stratify ET and PV as low or high risk, but this really refers only to thrombotic risk. And so a patient may be at low risk for thrombosis, but at high risk for progression to myelofibrosis or even to acute leukemia. And I think as a field, we need to develop better prognostic models to stratify progression risk in ET and PV Ultimately, we need to couple this with early intervention strategies for patients at high risk of progression, and we need clonally selective treatments to make this feasible. That would be my first takeaway. My second takeaway is that although the MPN phenotypic driver mutations, that is JAK2, CALOR, and MPL, are key to the pathogenesis of MPN and therefore remain incredibly important therapeutic targets, MPN has tremendous genomic complexity particularly with more advanced disease such as myelofibrosis. And we need to continue to work on developing new treatment approaches to target more challenging mutations such as ASXL1 and TP53, to name two. My third takeaway would be that certainly in clinical trials and also in clinical practice, we need to monitor molecular response comprehensively, not just JAK2 allelic burden. And as I highlighted earlier, MPN has genomic complexity. So therefore, a therapy might be effective against a JAK2 mutant clone, but might positively select for a separate independent clone or a subclone within the same patient. And so I think we need to perform comprehensive genomic analysis beyond just JAK2, V6 and 7F allelic burden. That would be my final takeaway. I think therapeutically probably the most exciting development is the development of mutant calreticulin directed therapeutic monoclonal antibodies. And so far, uh, these have been tested only in preclinical models, so that's either taking patient samples and testing them in the lab or testing them in mice or cell lines, but these have been tested by multiple independent groups, a total of four at this point, and the data looks very promising in terms of the ability of these antibodies to target mutant calverticulin specifically and effectively, and I'm optimistic that these findings will be translated into the clinic in the form of phase one clinical trials. On the disease biology end, I think a major recent development has been the recognition that there is a decades-long so-called preclinical phase to myeloproliferative neoplasms. And this is where we can detect the mutation in peripheral blood before the patient develops an overt myeloproliferative neoplasm. And this is what is called clonal hematopoiesis. We now know that this uh, process is decades-long, and this opens up the possibility that we could intervene in the preclinical stage and potentially prevent the development of these diseases if If we had effective therapies to target these MPN driver mutations. And then I think the final advance is in structural biology. So in 2022, a full length structure of a JAK2 mutant complexed with the cytokine receptor was revealed using cryo electron microscopy. And this really advances our understanding of how mutant JAK2 is activated and really increases the potential to develop small molecules that would be specific to the mutant JAK2 and would not inhibit the normal wild type JAK2.
2: Hi, I'm Allison Moliterno from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and more recently of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. I'm really delighted to share this article and, and so appreciative of the opportunity to work with Dr. Molali and Dr. Kozola on this wonderful review series. I felt very passionate about writing about polycythemia vera and bringing all that we know about JAK2V617F and JAK2 mutation as the central driver of phenotype and disease in polycythemia vera. We understand that the JAK2 mutation occurs in people, many of us as a clonal hematopoiesis lesion, very low level, or as part of uh, essential thrombocythemia or myelofibrosis as one of the drivers. But in polycythemia vera, it really is central to the cause of the disease, and really at this point, P-vera is defined now by the presence of a JAK2 mutation, either V617F or some of the less common JAK2 mutations. So that was really uh, what I wanted to bring to this for the general audience about how now since the 2005 discovery, how we really understand that P-vera is truly uh, the fulcrum of that disease is V617F. And then beyond that, you know, just after a few years after the discovery of the JAK2 mutation, not only the identification of the mutation, but the understanding that how much JAK2, in terms of allele burden or variant allele frequency, was driving the clinical phenotype. And within two years of the discovery, many uh, groups showed within polycythemia vera, again, specific to polycythemia vera that there was this range of JAK2 burden that could be measured really, very accurately, and that how much this drove the rise in blood counts. And then importantly, clinical symptoms, clinical burdensome symptoms. The more JAK2 you had, the more likely these symptoms. And then really importantly, the prognosis, both with thrombotic events, but also with progression to myelofibrosis. So that the was not only whether you had the mutation or not as defining the disease, but also how much of it. I mean, my colleagues on the call today did so much to again bring forward population studies about how much burden reflects this and the cause, how you develop these different burdens. The Jacky mutation is unique in that a single cell can develop one copy, and then through a process of uniparental disomy, a single cell can develop two copies so that you have between how many stem cells have the mutations in one copy or two copy and how many of these stem cells you have versus your residual wild-type stem cells really leaves us with quite a continuous burden across a population. The relevance for clinical hematologists, all of us uh, in the clinic dealing with blood counts, of patients, and symptoms, this is turning out to be a very useful biomarker of the disease. And I think there's been some concern or well, we don't have enough information uh, to really uh, bring this forward as a, a variant allele fraction or burden as truly a descriptive and predictive and prognostic biomarker for this disease. So I think this, is, this information now is very accessible to clinicians when we obtain JAK2 tests, either as a single test or on a next-generation sequencing panel. The variant allele fraction now is always reported as a percentage, so it comes to you and so we all have to start to embrace it to understand its meaning. So this is really relevant to all of us who practice in the clinic. How all these observational studies, retrospective or even prospective studies within polycythemia vera have shown us how important the allele burden is and how we're generating the proof to believe in this as a useful biomarker or prognostic burden. As I said, it reflects both clinical burden, but prognosis for venous thrombotic events, and also prognosis for progression, and that this is also a dynamic marker that can be measured over time. What we've done in this article is collecting all the observational data and reported this in tables, and again, across a population, the natural history of allele burden seems to be an increase of about 1% per year, again, across a whole population of vera patients, and that this is something to be aware of, that this dynamic nature of allele burden changes, so that again, if you have a patient with relatively low allele burden, they actually will do very well for decades. But if allele burden changes over time, and that often is heralded by changes in blood counts, that, again, this reflects a change in conal dominance or conal burden. That's my first point. My second is that we now have targeted therapies in many ways, as Dr. Malali mentioned, for myeloproliferative disease. It really matters what your mutational driver is. For many, for the last 15 years, we've been saying, well, it doesn't matter what your driver is, because the Jak stat pathway is, is common to those drivers, and that is true to some extent. And certainly in myelofibrosis, whether you have Jak2 or CALR for treatment of myelofibrosis with Jak inhibitors may not matter as much. It doesn't predict response. Your driver. Now as we're getting more granular, <laughs> certainly within polycythemia vera and CALR mutation positive diseases. Now that our therapies are tailored to the mutations, uh, this is very important to recognize this. We have JAK inhibitors and also interferons that specifically inhibit the JAK2 mutation or induce clonal suppression, however interferon works. And so what we found from prospective clinical trials that where they measure and report burden, that Sometimes you get beautiful allele burden reductions, which reflects clonal suppression. And associated with that is reduction of blood counts. And now we're seeing signals for reduction in thrombotic risk with allele burden reduction. And hopefully we also are seeing signals that disease progression is also induced. So that really matters what therapies we use, and if our goal can be to actually clonally suppress JAK2 and use allele burden as a monitor of that activity. So that's very exciting for therapeutics, and that's something to really look forward to in the future. There are better JAK inhibitors or stronger JAK inhibitors coming on, and I think that within P-vera, again, again, when we're talking about just polycythemia vera, it's surprising we actually see that some JAK inhibitors or some patients respond with JAK inhibition by also clonal suppression. And I think with marked reductions in allele burden, and I think getting all of us to start measuring this as we are monitoring our patients is very exciting because it's telling us potentially um, very important responses. I think we need to stop referring to, to these diseases is Philadelphia chromosome negative myeloproliferative disorders. But again, as a positive identifiers as CalR mutant positive disease or JAK2 mutant uh, positive disease. And developing therapies that really attack uh, clonal suppression. So such as the CalR antibody is a CalR directed and in this setting of JAK2 to either really understand how interferons promote clonal suppression, and perhaps in combination or with vaccines, or however we can target JAK2, V6, and 7F. I think that will be really exciting.
1: Anna, you have extensively studied the Calar mutant MPNs. You previously mentioned monoclonal antibodies, the preclinical studies on monoclonal antibodies. Do you think that these uh, tools uh, could be effective in uh, preventing clonal progression or even in uh, inducing clonal remission
0: yeah, so I think based on the preclinical data, this looks very exciting and and very promising, so I think the carditical mutation. We know it's a disease-initiating mutation. We know, so that means it can be the first mutation that causes these diseases. Uh, we know that alone it's sufficient to cause ET or myelofibrosis. Uh, so that really highlights that it's it's a very very important mutation in terms of driving the development of these diseases. And I think the data that we've seen so far in terms of the preclinical data that's been presented indicates that these antibodies are specific to mutant calreticulin. So when patient samples have been treated in the laboratory, patients with a JAK2 mutation don't show a response to the mutant calverticulin antibody, or cells that don't have the mutation also are not suppressed or impacted by the antibody. So that indicates that the antibody is specific to the mutant calverticulin cells. I think the antibody will uh, certainly inhibit the proliferation and or, or growth of the cells that have the uh, mutation, and that should result in things like reduction in platelet count, reduction in megakaryocytes in the bone marrow. Whether it will be able to eradicate or eliminate the stem cell that has the mutation, I think we don't know the answer to that yet. So, you know, will the cell that has the mutation die and be eliminated, or will we just sort of suppress proliferation uh, of the cells. I think that's an open question um, that we don't really know the answer to
1: yet. Alison, I fully agree with you that uh, mutant allele burden is uh, really an important prognostic factor in uh, polycythemia vera. And again, uh, do you think that the use of uh, interferon can prevent the progression of mutant allele burden and so prevent uh, disease evolution?
2: Oh, thank you, Dr. Cazola. That's really the question that I think haunts us all at night (laughs) with our patients. Um, You know, uh, and uh, I've had the luxury of being able to monitor allele burden first in the first uh, 10 years after the discovery through my research laboratory and a non-CLIA certified test. And then now, uh, since uh, the last seven or eight years, our hospital has developed a very accurate quantitative allele burden. To answer this question, I look at the PROUD-PV study and the PEG and VERA studies. But the PROUD-PV study, again, was this prospective study done uh, mostly in Europe, looking at ROPEG interferon or the longer-acting interferon. And again, now uh, up to seven years, uh, prospective follow-up, and this was a randomized controlled trial comparing ROPEG to best available care hydroxyurea. But yes, clinical responses seem to highly correlate with the molecular responses in clonal suppression. In my own patients, I have many who now have achieved this clonal suppression as reflected by JAK2 allele burden reduction such that they have gone from allele burdens of 80%. And over five years, right, uh, they have now uh, come to allele burdens below 5% or below 10% some level. Now, we need, you know, the luxury, uh, the, the the beauty of these diseases for our patients and, and for us is that patients live a long time, and these events uh, are fairly infrequent when they occur. But um, uh, that being said, it does make proving the benefit of allele conal suppression to take a study that requires five or 10 years to really fully realize this benefit. Like Dr. Malali mentioned, I don't think we could ever really eradicate, you know, take this uh, t- at the stem cell level to totally eliminate with the interference as we have now. But I think we are definitely seeing signals that in the prospective trials that suppression really now, the most recent update of the PROUD-PV trial, I think at the meetings this year, showed that after seven, by seven years now, there was definitely a significant difference of a combined endpoint of disease progression, thrombosis, or death in in patients who, and, and this also was very important for patients who achieved clonal suppression.
1: I want to thank you very much, all uh, the authors, for uh, their nice uh, review articles. I think that uh, this uh, series uh, provides clinical hematologists with the most recent advances in the treatment of MPNs. At the same time, it uh, illustrates how the definition of the genetic basis of disease can be translated into the development of innovative therapeutic tools.
0: Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of the Blood Podcast. To read these articles, visit bloodjournal.org. This episode is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology.